Amen. You may be seated. Well, we'll be jumping around a bit in our Bibles this morning, but you can turn to begin with to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, that'll be the section we'll, we'll start in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Um, and since I will be kind of going through fairly quickly from passage to pas passage, you won't necessarily need to sh uh, jump around with me. And there's probably a reference to a scripture passage in just about every paragraph of this sermon. And so I would encourage you, if you want to follow along, um, you'll find the notes on the website um, later this week, and you can refer to them uh, for the scriptural proofs, because I won't always point them out just in order of, uh, or for the sake of trying to jump, th uh, get through all of the material this morning. But in 2006, there was a case regarding this clash between uh, sexual and religious freedom that came before the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. That's our regional, this whole Western region, the, the Ninth U.S. Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. It's the largest Court of Appeals in the U.S. Um, it's also the one that is the most frequently overturned, ironically, <laughs> maybe not so ironic, but uh, the, they make decisions that are overturned more frequently than any other Court of Appeals by the Supreme Court. So there was a California high school where the gay and lesbian students organized a day of silence. Those uh, in support of the movement were encouraged to refrain from speaking in school. And so the school allowed this to take place without any hindrance. Um, the next day, Tyler Harper wore a t-shirt that read, be ashamed, our school has embraced what God has condemned. And the back of the shirt said, homosexuality is shameful, Romans 1.27. School officials took him out of class, asked him to remove the shirt. And I'm not sure exactly the details of what took place there. Um, but he ended up suing the school. <clears throat> and the school, um, the Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit, uh, sided with the school. And then Harper petitioned to the Supreme Court, and that eventually overturned the ruling. But by then, he had already graduated, and it was kind of a moot point. But it was, um, it was a situation where the Supreme Court upheld the religious freedom of the student. Uh, there was a similar example, and I can't remember. I even searched for it, which I'm usually pretty good about finding things that I've, I've lost in my mind. But there was a similar example where Christian students created a, a poster with a text of Romans 1, basically the latter half, verses 18 through 32, uh, but they left it unattributed. So it just had a, a poster with the words of the text, no recognition that it was from Romans. School authorities tore the posters down, destroyed them, and then they demanded that the author report themselves for immediate expulsion. So they soon discovered that they had expelled the Apostle Paul. Um, <laughs> The Bible has always been offensive. Uh, scripture frequently critiques cultural norms. If you study God's word and you understand something of the original context, you realize just how polemical it is. It's frequently pushing back on the cultural norms and what is accepted. Uh, so it shouldn't shock anyone that the Bible has detractors today. 
they have in every age, right? As long as scripture has, has been given to us, it's had its opponents. The problem nowadays, in our country at least, is that people truly have no idea that their position actually stands in direct con- contradiction to scripture. They're simply uninformed of what the Bible teaches, so they think they can be Christian and hold to these cultural norms. And so that's really what we're talking about this morning. We're taking a, a one-week break uh, from our series in Nehemiah. That's not typical. I'm hesitant to do it. In fact, I, I really debated um, with the session uh, openly saying, I, I, you know, I'm not sure I want to set a precedent for this kind of thing. Right? Because I really like going through God's word, verse by verse, taking a, a book at a time, and teaching it. I think you cover the basics, right? You cover all the, the foundational principles, and we would get to this if, if we were going through Romans or Genesis or any, many other passages, right? We have talked about these things. And so you do cover those um, at some point, and, and then you know that you're not just making a knee-jerk reaction to some cultural um, moment. But I do think that sometimes the, the moment is, is too important to ignore, And as uh, Matt mentioned, Bill C-4 has made federal, it's made it a federal offense to practice conversion therapy in Canada. That's the the language of the bill, is to say that conversion therapy is not allowed, right? It's a criminal, uh, it's a crime to practice it. And so the conviction can result in up to five years imprisonment if found guilty. Now, we can be clear that there are many examples of conversion therapy in history that were horrendous. Uh, Approaches to trying to convert someone uh, from homosexual to heterosexual, which involved like electric shock um, and worse. So the penalty, I mean, or so the, so the example of what they're trying to do on the surface sounds like we could all be behind it, right? We can all be, we should all be against forcing someone, holding them down and torturing them to change something they believe about themselves. Um, to my knowledge, no one is threatening to return to those approaches. This wasn't like Canada was all of a sudden, they discovered a group of churches that were like practicing these things behind closed doors. And they were like, we gotta, we gotta put an end to this. We gotta put a bill out there that just once and for all eliminates conversion therapy. But they, they did decide to, you, to, to put this uh, bill together that, and it defines conversion therapy in such broad terms that it could be construed in such a way that it outlaws any biblical teaching on the subject. Because anything that the scriptures say on the subject is negative, as we'll find out. So it could easily set a precedent for condemning the Bible as hate speech. And therefore, anyone that preaches it or anyone that reads it to their neighbor in love and out of compassion would be potentially convicted of a crime. So this morning's sermon will clarify the principles that inform any counsel I would give to someone who confessed to experiencing same-sex attraction. And so for anyone who wants to figure out where this church stands, where Brad Mills stands on the subject, 
and they wonder, what would he do if someone confessed to, to struggling with or experiencing same-sex attraction? How would he deal with it? Well, this, this sermon would be where I'd point them to. And this is what I want to say before I pray, is that God's word on human sexuality is under attack from a rebellious world that rejects it and from a timid church that is all too often embarrassed by it. So let's ask the Lord for his help in standing firm. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is clear, that it's not confusing on this topic, and that when we hear competing worldviews, when we hear competing definitions of marriage and alternative ways of understanding human sexuality, Lord, we, we, we have a clear instruction from your word what is true. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful in proclaiming that truth and not backing down from a culture that is in rebellion against you, that is inventing ways to be idolaters. And Lord, convict us any time that we are silent on issues, Lord, where we have been embarrassed by the truth, afraid, in fact, fearing the consequences of what man can do rather than uh, your judgment. And so, Lord, I pray that today, as many pastors stand in pulpits and proclaim the truth of biblical sexuality, I pray that your gospel would be heard loud and clear, that the truth would be shared in love, and Lord, that you would be honored and glorified in the way that your word is proclaimed. And Lord, if it leads to consequences, if it leads to persecution, I pray that your church might rejoice in response, that we would have the privilege of suffering for declaring what you've given to us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth, ears to hear it, soften our hearts to respond in obedience to it, whatever that looks like for each one of us, that you would be lifted high, that your word would be magnified, and that we would have an appreciation all the more for uh, the principles that we find in your word. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Amen. So Genesis chapter 1, we're looking at this first section. If you follow along in your outline, it's God's clear intention. God's clear intention. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. And we'll be in, these, in this chapter and the next chapter uh, for a, a little bit here. So if you want to turn there, you can. This is God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Since God made both genders in his image, they possess equal dignity and value. Both genders are fully human and both reflect the glory 
and the communicable, uh, the communicable attributes of God equally. One is not better equipped to reflect God's glory and attributes. One is not better than the other in that sense. Both genders represent the pinnacle of God's creation and are commanded to take dominion over the earth. There are distinct males and females in every human culture, even if their gender expression differs from one another. So you look at uh, verse 28 of Genesis 1. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then in the next chapter, at the end of that, it says this in verse 23 and 25 of chapter 2. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So there are physical distinctions between genders that make the creation of a family possible. This covenantal commitment of marriage is the context in which sexual, sexual activity is blessed. And so this passage serves as the foundation for our understanding of sex and marriage. Jesus refers to it in Matthew chapter 19. It's a lifelong commitment that increases our sense of contentment in life. The intimacy that is enjoyed within the context of marriage goes beyond physical to include emotional and spiritual communion without any sense of shame. They were naked and not ashamed. So they could experience the fullness that of being created in the image of God within that context of, with that, within that marriage context, enjoying physical, emotional, and spiritual union. And the distinctions between men and women also make each of them suited to particular roles within the home that promote the well-being of the family and display God's covenant love and faithfulness. You find that in Ephesians 5. It's a, marriage is to reflect God's love for his people. And so these issues, they've come before our denomination, the General Assembly, on multiple occasions. And the, since I've been in ministry, we've talked about this every couple of years. And in, somewhat recently, in 2018, the PCA almost unanimously approved making BCO 59.3 constitutional. All that section says is this, marriage is only to be between one man and one woman. It refers to Genesis 2, Matthew 19, and 1 Corinthians 7. In accordance with the word of God, therefore ministers in the Presbyterian Church in America who solemnize marriages shall only solemnize marriages between one man and one woman. That is in a section of the BCO that at the time was not constitutional. There's only portions of the BCO that are constitutional. A lot of it is considered sort of just good wisdom in guiding uh, the, the leadership of the church and how they can practice various uh, principles. But 
in this case, this section, the, the denomination said, we need to make this constitutional so that there's not some rogue church that decides, you know what, we want our minister to have the freedom to marry whoever, whomever they want to. This actually puts a restriction upon uh, ministers in the Presbyterian Church in America to only solemnize marriages between one man and one woman. Well, the next year, in 2019, uh, at the General Assembly, the PCA commended as biblically faithful all 14 articles of the Nashville Statement. And I would encourage you to look that up and read it. It's, it's succinct and very helpful. But this, I'll read to you Article 1 right now. It provides, I think, a, a very good summary of God's design. It says, We affirm that God has designed marriage to be a covenantal, sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman as husband and wife and is meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church. We deny that God has designed marriage to be a homosexual, polygamous, or polyamorous relationship. We also deny that marriage is a mere human contract rather than a covenant made before God. So very clear, right? as a denomination, we have, we have affirmed these statements, we have adopted them and commended them to the members of our churches. In the same year, in 2019, the PCA also appointed seven men to provide a study committee report on human sexuality. And that report was released in 2020, but because of COVID restrictions, the General Assembly didn't meet. And so we ended up not actually receiving that report until last year. Uh, and it was overwhelmingly approved I, uh, by a show of hands. So we don't actually have a count to give for how much, uh, you know, what percentage of the denomination approved it, but it was nearly unanimous in terms of the show of hands. Regarding God's clear intentions, this 60-page document, it's, it's very clear and it's robust, and I would encourage you to, to read it um, in the preamble, which the first five or six pages is just the preamble with uh, 12 statements that really summarize um, our denomination's view on human sexuality. But here's what the preamble says. We see many professing Christians and whole denominations surrendering to the sexual revolution. We do not want to be one of them, nor even now in subtle ways to sow the seeds for some future capitulation. As the natural family is a fundamental unit of human society and is the normal means of care and nurture, all sins which threaten, undermine, or marginalize it are both spiritually dangerous and detrimental to human flourishing. Again, quite clear in our intentions, in our understanding of God's intentions for human sexuality. And so it shouldn't be surprising that God's intentions are very practical. Right? When people live according to these intentions, society improves. On the contrary, when people reject these intentions, society breaks down. Uh, during Pride Week in Amsterdam 2017, Royal Dutch Airlines created a social media campaign that portrayed three sets of rainbow-colored seatbelts. Maybe some of you remember this. A, a typical working seatbelt has sort of a, a tongue that goes into a, a uh, buckle, and sometimes referred to as the male and the female uh, ends of the seatbelt. 
So in their advertisement, the top row showed two buckles coming together. The middle row showed two tongues coming together. And and it was only the last row that showed a typical seatbelt with a tongue and a buckle. And the tagline read, it doesn't matter who you click with. It doesn't matter who you click with. Well, people were quick to point out that it absolutely matters if you want the seatbelt to actually click and to function properly in a crash landing. So in a succinct fashion, the Westminster Confession of Faith lists four practical benefits that marriage provides. It says that marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, Genesis 2.18, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and of the church with an holy seed, Malachi 2.15, and for preventing of uncleanness, 1 Corinthians 7, 2 and 9. So in other words, marriage is good for the husband and wife. It's good for every society. It's good for the growth of the church. And it's good for the purity of each covenant member. And so our denomination requires the promotion of these truths. This is part of our constitution as well, this definition that's provided here from the Westminster Confession. So we require that, that the biblical definition of human sexuality be defined or that, that it, the biblical definition of marriage is for the good of everyone. And a minister in the PCA would have to disregard our standards in order to officiate a wedding that falls outside of the boundaries of scripture and therefore they would be brought up on charges and they should be held accountable for such actions. So anything outside of God's clear design is sinful and must be treated as man's confused perversion. And that's where I want to spend the bulk of our time here. Well, the rest, and I'm sorry, we're going to go a little over. But the second point is man's confused perversion. Sexual sins really begin with a compromised view of marriage. When believers are willing to marry unbelievers against 2 Corinthians 6.14 or to flippantly divorce according to Matthew 5, 31 through 32, when marriage is compromised, when, when the degradation of marriage introduces, right, when we degrade marriage, we introduce a variety of sexual sins. And here's why sexual sins are important to make, it, it's important to make a distinction between those types of sins and others. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20 reads this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, but you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 
Herman Bobbink notes that sexual sin is especially serious because it defiles the body of Christ. And he's basing that off of this 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And when, when, Christians, uh, when a Christian sins against their own body, it's extra heinous because they have been united to Christ. And so there are degrees, in fact, of sexual sin. Um, and and Bobbing points these out in just a few examples. He says there's, you have fornication, fornication, which is a sin against our own body and the body of our neighbor. Right? Fornication would be sex outside of marriage. Uh, pre- premarital sex. It's sin against your own body and the body of your neighbor, but adultery adds sin against our marriage and our family. It's really an attack on the marriage covenant and the responsibility you have as a parent. And then even worse is the unnatural sins which Bavink gives two examples, pedophilia and homosexuality. And he bases this off Leviticus 18, Romans 1, 26 and 27, and 1 Timothy 1, 10. So I'll read Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their heir. In other words, fornication and adultery are sexual sins of a natural variety. But here Paul is highlighting the descent of man into unnatural desires. And he gives it as as an example of really the the depth of depravity depravity that they had fallen into. You can read the the whole context in that latter section of Romans 1. Homosexuality. If you just had the biblical definition of marriage, that alone, just based on Genesis 1 and 2, which we've already looked at, that implicitly condemns uh, homosexuality, right? Because it's not between one man and one woman. But scripture goes beyond that, right? It explicitly condemns it. In fact, there's not a single biblical reference that speaks of homosexuality in a positive way or even in a neutral way. It is only and always negative. It's always a sin to be repented of. Sodom and Gomorrah were, re- were destroyed because of homosexuality. It's labeled an abomination deserving the death penalty for both parties in Leviticus 18 and 20. And in addition to that clear condemnation that we just read of homosexuality in Romans 1, 26 and 27, Paul affirms that the law corrects all kinds of sinners, including men who practice homosexuality. And that, that phrase, men who practice homosexuality, occurs both in 1 Timothy 1.10 and 1 Corinthians 6.9, but it's two different words. In 1 Timothy, he uses the word arsenikoites, which refers to the aggressive partner. And in 1 Corinthians 6.9, he uses the word malakos, 
which refers to the effeminate partner. And so all parties in a homosexual relationship are condemned very clearly by the language of Paul, those who practice homosexuality. And so even recognizing that at this time, in this context, there were lofty perspectives on homosexuality being promoted in Rome. Paul, in line with the Old Testament, condemns the practice without qualification. People would not have been confused about where Paul stood on the matter. It's also heinous and unnatural to desire to have sex with children. And I'll be very brief here, but pedophilia not only violates the seventh commandment according to its sexual component, but also violates the fifth commandment in taking advantage of defenseless children. But let's take a step back and let's just consider sins of a less heinous degree. Because this is where a lot of the controversy resides within our denomination. And maybe even in your own uh, study of the matter. Is it a sin to simply confuse gender and identity issues? And do we really even understand identity language? Timothy Keller, he tweeted uh, just before Thanksgiving of last year on 1123, he tweeted that the denomination should do a major study before amending the BCO with words like identify and identity in order to make sure that we are conveying biblical truth. Now, ironically, he tweeted this after co-authoring, he was one of the seven men who co-authored the Ad Interim Committee report on human sexuality, which includes the word identity 74 times. It includes the word identify something like six times, identities seven times, and identifies another three times or something like that. So you've got over, you know, almost 90 occurrences of these words in the document. But because there is a, there are two overtures being commended to the denomination that would put it into the BCO and into our practice, these uh, these principles, he's saying we need to we need to stop we need to slow down and we need to understand the language we're using here. Now I am praying for Keller. He's he's got stage four pancreatic cancer. It's it's he's not. Um, we don't know how long he'll have. Um, we should pray for him and we should be concerned. And he's done a lot of good for the church but I completely disagree with him on this matter. I think it's disingenuous, in fact, to suggest that the language of identity is now confusing. I think it's a convenient argument to make. The concept is thoroughly biblical, and we don't have time to look into them all, but you can look them up later. 2 Corinthians 5, Galatians 2, Romans 6, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 6, all refer to the concept of identity. And our identity, first and foremost, primarily, is in Christ. So the report on the Committee on Human Sexuality includes Statement 9 on identity. There's a whole section to help us understand identity. In light of our union with Christ, we should never, it says, juxtapose identities rooted in sinful desires alongside the term Christian, which undermines the spiritual reality that we are new creations 
in Christ. You should not put two terms together, one being Christian and one being a sinful desire. Joel Beakey says this, the gospel promise of such were some of you means there is no such thing as a gay Christian or a lesbian Christian any more than there is a Christian adulterer or a Christian drunkard. The idea is you're taking a sinful desire and you're attaching it to your identity in Christ. That should not be how we describe ourselves. And so according to Overtures 23 and 37, the use of this kind of language like gay or homosexual Christian is, a, is disqualifying for church office. That's what the overtures are trying to do. They're trying to say that this is disqualifying language to speak of yourself as a a gay Christian. The report does go on to state that we should not police every use of the term gay. That's in the very next statement. Rather, it says, we should patiently encourage them in the process of their sanctification to leave behind identity language rooted in sinful desires. And I think that's good. I agree with that. But if I were to ask each of those authors if they think it's appropriate to police language that comes from the pulpit, I believe they would unanimously affirm such a practice. In fact, it is the duty of elders to guard the language from the pulpit. And so to suggest that a person is disqualified from office for using immature language is exactly what officers should be doing. All right, so we can go on. Just a few other examples, and I I know we're, we're out of time, but transgenderism is the assertion that someone's personal gender is different than their biological sex at birth. The second statement of the Human Sexuality Report refers to the image of God, and it reads this, As a God of order and design, God opposes the confusion of man as woman and woman as man. 1 Corinthians 11, 14 through 15. While situations involving such confusion can be heartbreaking and complex, men and women should be helped to live in accordance with their biological sex. Okay, very clear. And that language right there seems to be opposed by Bill C-4. Seems to be outlawed to say something like that. That you should, their definition of conversion therapy is that, this is again in Canada, is that anything that would would encourage someone to, uh, to live by their biological sex rather than their preferred orientation would be considered conversion therapy. So we should be concerned about this bill. Uh, This, as well, is consistent with Article 7 of the National Statement. Very clear, says, We affirm that self-conception as male or female should be defined by God's holy purposes in creation and redemption as revealed in Scripture. Self-conception as male or female should be defined by God's holy purposes. We deny that adopting a homosexual or transgender self-conception is consistent with God's holy purposes in creation and redemption. Again, remember, we've adopted these as, as uh, faithful statements, uh, faithful summaries of Scripture's teaching on these topics. So what about sins that only remain a desire? They're never actually acted upon. They're just a desire. Again, 
this human sexuality report is helpful. It has a statement for on desire and says this, we affirm not only that our inclination towards sin is a result of the fall, but that our fallen desires are in themselves sinful. Romans 6, 11 and 12, 1 Peter 1, 14 and 1 Peter 2, 11. So the desire, this is continuing in the, in the statement, the desire for an illicit end, whether in sexual desire for a person of the same sex or in sexual desire connected or disconnected from the context of biblical marriage, is itself an illicit desire. Therefore, the experience of same-sex attraction is not morally neutral. The attraction is an expression of original or indwelling sin that must be repented of and put to death. Romans 8.13. It further clarifies and strengthens this logic in statement 5, speaking of the, um, the doctrine of concupiscence. It says, we affirm that impure thoughts and desires arising in us prior to and apart from a conscious act of the will are still sin. You say, but this isn't a, a desire that I, that I wanted. I didn't ask for this desire. It was something that I just was born with. Still sin. We reject the Roman Catholic understanding of concupiscence, whereby disordered desires that afflict us due to the fall do not become sin without a consenting act of the will. These desires within us are not mere weaknesses or inclinations to sin, but are themselves idolatrous and sinful. All right, so the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 139, is clear that sexual sins are both external and internal. It says the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections. This is all very consistent with the standards of our church, that the desires themselves are sinful. And they point to passages that condemn evil thoughts and evil desires, like Matthew 15, 19, and Colossians 3, 5. So let me just conclude with this, and I'm sorry, uh, we're going to get it out here a little late, but God provides a a challenging solution. I'm just going to give you four basic, simple points. The first and primary point of response is a proper view of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. When you trust in Jesus, your faith binds you to Christ and that union becomes your greatest identity marker. You are now in Christ. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. I've been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, Galatians 2.20. So first, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Know that you are united to him. Secondly, repent of any perverse thought, any desire, any action. Turn away from your sins. Don't only repent of your past actions, but repent of your present desires that are out of accord with God's clear will for your life. 
Third, make progress in your sanctification, which involves the mortification of your old man with his sinful actions and desires and the vivification of your new man with his passion to glorify God in everything that he thinks, says, and does. Flee sexual immorality. Live in light of your justification, sanctification, and cleansing. Practice self-control. This is what the believer is called to. And lastly, I would say, seek to correct any confusion regarding God's intention and unashamedly proclaim God's design as the best path for humanity, regardless of the consequences. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is... um, a heavy topic in our culture. It's, it's something that many are shying away from. And Lord, we want to be those who stand firm on your word and on your truth. And whatever the consequences might be now or in the future, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified and honored. We pray for the pastors in Canada who are uh, fearful of government intrusion upon their pulpit of a vast overreach which would restrict what they can say what they can teach how they can counsel and lord we've seen very similar approaches here in the u.s and so lord we know that these things are going to be controversial we know that a biblical view of marriage and human sexuality is going to be against what the culture and the world is screaming and continually promoting. But Lord, give us the strength to persevere with the truth. Give us a love for our neighbor. Lord, there are many who would say that as we speak of repentance, the church itself needs to repent of the way that it has treated the LGBTQ community. And there may be some truth to that, depending on how that reaction was. But Lord, oftentimes it seems like there is just a desire to find, uh, to find commonality with the culture. And to be embarrassed by what your word clearly teaches. Lord, we don't repent of standing firm on your truth. To do so would be blasphemous. We repent of the thoughts and the desires and the actions that are contrary to your revealed will. And we call others to repent of those as well. But Lord, we recognize that that apart from the work of your spirit, apart from the profession of faith and the resting in Christ and what he has done for us, that we will continue to be drawn by worldly desires and by sinful temptations. Even as believers, we are not made perfect in this life, and so we continue to struggle throughout our lives. But because we've been united to Christ, because we've been given the Spirit, Lord, you've made a way of escape. You've made that way 
abundantly clear on the matter of sexuality. So Lord, help us if we are struggling with anything, Lord, any, anything that's outside of your design for a marital covenant union. Well, we pray that you would bring us to our knees in repentance, that we would confess freely our sin, and that we would find in your grace and in your mercy all that we need to persevere in godliness, to turn away from our sin, to mortify the deeds of the flesh, and to vivify the new man that we've been made into, the righteousness with which we've been clothed. That more and more we would put off the old and put on the new. We ask this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our psalm of response, Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes.